How did they do that? Was the question asked in our house yesterday evening. How did they do it? Because we've got visitors who are down with us for the weekend and they had visited Gloucester Cathedral. As you do when you visit Gloucester. And uh, she was saying, she was asking, how was it that they could build cathedrals like that? Uh, all those centuries ago with the without all the, the, the mechanics and the, 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 the stuff that we have today. And of course it is absolutely amazing. Gloucester Cathedral, a very special building. And uh, well worth seeing of course. A special building. A special building. We've been thinking about, and we're going to think more about now, a very special building. I had uh, a friend when we lived in Cornwall, which was a long time ago. And I remember being in his house, and his children were talking about going to church on Sunday. To which he said, and I'm told he said it often, we do not go to church. We are the church. We don't go to church. We go to church services, church other things, whatever else, but we are the church. And in the Bible, in the passage that uh, was read to us from 1 Corinthians and uh, the passage even last week and one or two other, others that we could look at, often the church, though, is referred to as a building, isn't it? And in today's reading, the, the church was referred to as a very special building, a unique building. The church was God's holy and is God's holy temple. What is a temple? We, don't, we have cathedrals and we have great places. We don't have temples though, do we? But the people that, that uh, Paul was writing to in Corinth, the church there, they understood temples. The Jews, of course, had their temple in, uh, in Jerusalem. There would be Jewish, Jewish Christians, no doubt, in Corinth. We know there were. And they would think about, as he talked about the temple, they would think to the temple in Jerusalem then, Herod's great temple. They may think of its predecessors, particularly the temple of Solomon or the temple that Solomon built. They understood a temple. The, the Ephesians, the Greeks in Ephesus, they also understood a temple. Because up on their hill, and you can still see the remains of it, was the temple to the, to the goddess Diana, Artemis. A temple where she was worshipped and people from all around the world, literally then, would come to Ephesus to worship her. So they understood temples. What was a temple? Well, it was a place, yes, where God or gods were worshipped. But it was also a place more than that. It was a place also that gave people their identity. So for the Jewish people, the temple, above all else, spoke of who they were, spoke of God's people, that they were God's people. But it was also a place where, where in, a, in one sense, the presence of God was, or God's in the case of Diana, was to be manifested, to be made known, to be experienced. And God, of course, as we know in the Old Testament, literally appeared at times, or his glory appeared at times in the temple, in that temple that Solomon had built. And we've read in today's reading that God is building a temple. Only it's not a place. It's not actually a building, although the, the analogy is of a building, but it's a people. God's people are the temple. And Abbey Church, 
is a part of that temple. We think of ourselves as individual stones, and we are. But also this church, the local church, is a local expression of that temple that God is building. And how is he doing that? Well, as we've also been reminded, first and foremost, he is building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. No other foundation, Paul says. That's the only foundation that a church, that the church, the one church, not the church down the road, by the way, when we talk about the one church, they've got a good name, but the one church, because there is only one church. You know that, don't you? Yeah? You've got lots of brothers and sisters in other sorts of churches, but there's only one church, one church of Jesus Christ. And that one church is built on one and only one foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now we know, I'm not a builder, but I do understand the basics that foundations are really important. I, my, my, my building is confined to building a small retaining wall at home. And even that I didn't put proper foundations for. And even that wasn't straight. So I've got no, I can bring no experience. As others say this morning, you can, but I've got no practical experience. But I do understand that foundations are really important. I remember seeing on the news, and there's been more than one sadly, isn't there, of buildings collapsing in India. People losing their lives because the foundations were inadequate. It was a five-story building, but it only had foundations sufficient for two stories. And at some point, those, that building came tumbling down and people died. Back in, uh, when I lived in uh, Chard and worked in Lyme Regis, Lyme Regis, as you know, is strange sort of uh, earth there. This is why they find the fossil things. And very close to where I worked, just over the road, literally, was a, mat, was a hill, uh, hillside on which the builders were building. Now, there were already some old cottages, including one occupied by the aunt of a girl that I worked with, on the top of this hill. And the builder built this whole site, and he was going to build more houses. And the people were really worried about him building houses because it was green sand. I didn't understand what green sand was, but I understand it wasn't the stuff that you should be building on. But the builder was, was going to build and before it even really got to start doing much of the building, you know how they do, they scrape all the topsoil off to create the you know, level foundations. They moved all the topsoil up closer to the top of the hill. Do you know what happened? Well, just the weight of the topsoil caused the green sand on which these cottages were built to shift. The foundations were on the green sand. And those people had to leave... The, the aunt of my, the girl I worked with, had to move out of that house. I don't know if she ever moved back into it because it was so serious with the cracks that appeared because of no foundations. And Paul writes right at the beginning here, right, it's so important, isn't it, that the church at Corinth, he says there are cracks appearing, he doesn't literally say, but there are cracks appearing in your walls. You've got some problems, folks. You see, I see the cracks, and the cracks are, are like... The factions that are appearing amongst you, one saying, I'm for Paul, another for Apollos, another early on you'll say, I'm for Peter, and the super spiritual ones are saying, well, I'm for Jesus. And they got the right answer. Whether they really meant it, I don't know. But these factions, these groups were appearing within the church, and there was quarreling, and there was jealousy, and falling out amongst them. And he says, these cracks are telling me that you are not building on the one foundation. Because if you're building on the one foundation of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't be like this. 
You wouldn't be like children who need to grow up because you're not building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Well, we might see them as great men of God, but he said we're just building workers. We're just builders. We're just building God's temple, just like you're meant to be building God's temple. We're not anything special. So what did he mean when he talked about building on the foundation? Well, first of all, prime to the, a key part of that is building on the foundation of the teaching of Jesus Christ. As we were reminded last work in, in, week in Matthew 7. Build on hearing and doing his words. Paul said when he came, when he in, 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 uh, uh, earlier on in, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 2, verse 2, when he talked about his teaching at Corinth, he said this, I knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I taught you. I'm sure he taught other things as well, but it, that was absolutely core and central to all of his teaching. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he taught amongst them. Because these death and resurrection are absolutely of absolute importance. You see, it's only through a recognition of that that we become part of the church of God. It's only as we recognize that we need, we need his salvation, that we need to experience what we've demonstrated this morning, that, we are, that we're not good enough, nowhere near good enough, that we're worthy of God's judgment, the way we live, the way we do things, the things we say, never mind the things we think, are worthy of God's judgment. That's the reality. And if we haven't understood that, then we haven't understood anything. And because of that, we need to come in repentance, humble repentance and confession. And recognize that God has made a way for all of us through Jesus Christ so that we can become part of his church. In our society, we tend to think very much about, I get saved and then I go and find a church. If you read through Acts and Scriptures, really, as you come to Christ, you are part of his church. Yes, yeah, sure, you need to find a local expression of that to be part of and commit to. But they, they were added to the numbers, weren't they? If you read through Acts, it doesn't say 3,700 or whatever else was saved. It says there was that number added to the church or added to their number. We become part of the church of Jesus Christ. We are added to the church, the one church that spans this whole globe and spans all the generations. There is one church, visible and invisible. And so you get from that very quickly, don't you, that being part of the church is not about coming to services. That is a key element, but church is much more than coming to services. The church exists every day of the week. The church exists in every place where we are and other believers are. The church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And in him is our unity. In him is our unity. That is the only source of our unity. If we think that we're going to get on all the time, if we think we're not going to have different ideas about the way we do church, if we think at times we're not going to say, I'm for him and I'm for him, we kid ourselves. They are not, those things are not the source of our unity. The source of our unity is simply 
that the, the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and that through what he's done for us, we are made part of his family, made part of his church. How many of us have been in churches which have separated for the very reasons, that were, the problems that were going on in Corinth? I have. People saying, I'm for this. No, I'm for this. This is right. That's wrong. And so often, sadly, churches divide. We are behaving like mere infants, behaving like the world. Our unity is in Jesus Christ. Through him, we're part of the family. And as families at times, it may be difficult and uncomfortable at times, as we all know that's family life. But in him, we are part of his family, and him, in him, we stick together. We stick together. And we work through our differences. Because he is our unity, and therefore we are, as we were thinking last week, last Sunday evening, we are called to love one another, however difficult at times that might be. So the foundation is Jesus Christ, and we need to build with the right materials, as Chris has reminded us. God is building a very special place. We read, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? This is the place where God is to dwell forever with his people. You've probably all heard the story of the three, three stone cutters. But just to remind you, a guy goes to the quarry and the people quarrying stone. And he asks each of the stone cutters the same question. He says to the first, what are you doing? Very stupid question and it's pretty obvious. And he gets the sort of answer that you'd expect. What am I doing? I'm cutting stone. He goes up to the second, what are you doing? He said, I'm cutting stone and I'm cutting the stone to these exact dimensions to make it perfectly square. And he goes to the third. And the third says, I'm cutting stone, and I'm cutting it to these exact dimensions, because this stone is going to be a part of a cathedral where God is worshipped. They were all doing exactly the same thing, but only one of them had any idea of the significance of what he was doing, of the importance of what he was doing. What we are part of is really important. How we build is very significant. Because we're not building just a, an organization here. We're not building you know, anything as small as a, as a business. We're not engaging in a club. We're building the temple of the living God. We're building the place where God by his spirit dwells now and will dwell in perfection forever. This is really significant. We're not just cutting a stone. We're cutting a stone that's going to go in a place that's going to last forever, that's going to be for the glory of God. This is really important stuff. Paul and Apollos were just builders, just servants on God's great building project, and so are we. That's what God has called us to do. And God can use anyone. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he can use the foolish, or the world thinks foolish, he can use the ordinary for the extraordinary. Don't have to have any qualifications in that. He's not looking for superheroes. He's looking for people who would just say, yes, I'm willing to, for God, for you to use me for your great purposes. Providing we build with the right materials and the right materials are really important 
because you can build with gold or silver or precious stones and you can equally build with paper cups and straws or anything else. You can build with wood, hay or stubble. And this is really important because what you build with, what we build with, this isn't just about our individual lives though, you can apply it that way as well. What we build with together is going to be tested. Roger talked about the storms of life that test us last week, and that's true. There are times of testing in our individual lives and as churches. You could also think about the testing of Ephesians chapter 6 where the devil is against us and seeks to destroy and divide and all the rest of it. Those are times of testing too. But this passage talks about the ultimate test, doesn't it? It talks about the day. The day. A day. A time. A specific time. And the day runs right all the way through scriptures, doesn't it? And the day, and Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 5, the day is about when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes... It will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of great rejoicing as well, but it will also be a day of judgment where everything is revealed for what it is. Nothing will, nothing, will, nothing will be hidden any longer. Everything will be in the searchlight of his light, and that will show up everything, literally, for how it is. And what you build with is important. Gold and silver and precious stones are the things that which you build things like palaces with, fit for kings. Wood, hay, and stubble, that's my chicken house, literally. My chicken house is wood, hay, and a bit of straw, and a little bit of metal. And if somebody sadly came and set afire my chicken house, hopefully the chickens wouldn't be in it, but if they did, there'd be nothing left, just bits of metal. The wood, the hay, the straw, all gone. That would be terrible for me and for my chickens. But this is a lot more serious. This is saying that when the day comes, the church, along with others, will also be part of God's judgment. Not to lose our salvation in him, but what sort of church we have built will be tested, will be revealed and tested. And if it's not of the right materials, it won't stand. It won't be part of God's eternal, wonderful temple. It'll be lost. And that will be terrible for us. So Jesus says, be ready. How do we build? What are the right materials to build with? Gold and silver and precious stones are the things to build with according to this passage, aren't they? It's things that are beautiful, things that last, things that are of great value, things that are fit for a temple where God dwells. These are just illustrations. Our society puts great value on, on outer beauty, whether it be personal or houses or whatever else. But all the things we emphasize and work on in terms of beauty, they ain't going to last. As we all know, we only have to look in the mirrors, folks, don't we? And that's bad enough as we see 
We see uh, what we thought once was looked okay is not quite as okay as it used to be. And it's all downhill, folks, isn't it? All downhill. But this is something that is to be beautiful forever. Because this is God's temple. What is, beauty, what is gold and silver and precious stones? What is pure and beautiful and of great value and lasts forever? We could answer that in various ways. Here's another way, though, and I just changed the question. Who is pure? Perfect. Who is beautiful? Beyond description. Who is of value that we could never begin to put a value on him? Who will last forever? I think the answer to the question of how we build of gold and silver is what are we building of Jesus Christ? And this is what we're going to be thinking over the next few weeks in terms of our lives. What are we building of Jesus Christ? What of him is being built into our lives so that they become and the church becomes something of gold and silver and precious stones? And as we do that, as we build of him, it becomes something beautiful. There was a lady. I thought she was an old lady, but she was probably only in her late 60s or 70s because I was only in my 20s. So you've got to understand that. And now I think that 60s and 70s is incredibly young, of course, right? Because I'm very close to entering that phase. But I thought at the time she was an old lady. But this old lady stayed with me. I can still picture her. She always seemed to wear the same clothes. <laughs> she had a grey coat, a grey mac, and she rode a bike. And that's how I picture her. Auntie Doris is on her bike, riding, pedalling away, uphill and downhill. Auntie Doris is no longer with us. Auntie Doris will stay with me forever, perhaps. Because Auntie Doris was one of those ladies that was building with gold and silver and precious stones. She didn't have an easy life. I'm not going to talk to you about circumstances, but it was not easy. I'll tell you that. But Auntie Doris gave herself to other people because she loved Jesus Christ. So Auntie Doris would cycle to deliver meals to people. Auntie Doris would come and visit you if you were sick. Auntie Doris ran the youth club, not for nice church boys and girls, but for unchurched children. Auntie Doris kept going. And in Auntie Doris, Auntie Doris asked us to pray. When we joined the church, we hadn't been there that long, and Auntie Doris gave us a little slip of paper, and on it it said, as you join the church, will you pray for God's revival among us? And in Auntie Doris, I and others saw something of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Auntie Doris sought to live her life according to what would Jesus do. Now that came up in our home group discussion this week. 
And Claire said it was important, and Claire's absolutely right. She said, when we ask that question, of course, we do need to know what Jesus would do, and we know what Jesus would do by reading his word. And that's really important. It isn't just guessing what Jesus would do. You might know that what would Jesus do came from this book. Who's ready in his steps? Oh, only one or two of us. Well, here's a book you can borrow afterwards if you want to. In his steps. When this was, uh, this is an old copy. When this was uh, sold, 30 million copies have been sold. Today, over 50 million copies have been sold. That's partly because the publisher didn't put a copyright, failed to get the right copyright, so anyone could come and publish the book. So I should add that. But it is a very interesting book. And this is where What Would Jesus Do comes from. It's all from this book. Well, probably other sources as well. Because it tells a story. This is written by a minister. He was a young minister in Kansas. This was in 1897. And this young minister was disturbed about what he saw in the church in Kansas. And uh, he worked this out by, he, he, he dressed himself up and pretended to be an unemployed printer. Any other unemployed printers amongst us? There's one at least this morning. I think the other two aren't here. But anyway, the, um, the, the, it, and he went around asking for help from the churches to see what response he'd get. And he became very disappointed with the, with the offers of help or lack of help. And because of that, he writes this book. And the book starts with the minister, Henry Maxwell, preparing his sermon. And the sermon is based on uh, 1 um, Peter 2.21. And 1 Peter 2.21 says this, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And the minister, the young minister is preparing this sermon and he's talked about all that Christ has done for us, just about this this morning. And then he's gone on to the second part of that verse, that we should copy Christ. We should do as, we should do as he's done, not, not in the atoning sacrifice, but in the way that we spend and give our lives. And while he's just finished preparing his sermon... When there's a, when he, a, a, he's a knock on the front door, and the front door, he opens the front door to a young man who's fairly shabbily dressed. And the young man says that he's an unemployed printer. And can the minister, he, but he's desperate for work. He'll do anything, anything. And if the minister can help in any way, point him in any direction, he'll, he'll do it. And after various discussions, the minister says, you know, I can't help you, sorry. I, I, I'd love to, but I, can't, I don't think of any way I can help you. You'll have to, sorry, go. And he shuts the door on him, sort of wipes his brow, and, and that's it. And then next, so tomorrow, he's preaching his sermon. He's preaching his sermon on that text in the church. And he's just got to the end of his sermon, when? And then you've got to read the book. I'm not going to tell you what happens then, if you want to read it. But suffice to say that what happens then revolutionizes his life. And he, and he, and he asks his church, or at least those that are willing, to, complete, to, to, to make a pledge that they won't do anything in the next year without asking first, what would Jesus do?
And the book is all about what happens to them or to some of these people in the church as they seek to do exactly that, to honor the pledge that they've made, to do only as Jesus would do. And you can believe, therefore, it's quite a challenging, it's only a story, it's quite a challenging book. What would Jesus do? What would Auntie Doris do? I think I could imitate Auntie Doris safely, just as Paul says we could imitate him safely. Could people imitate me safely? Could people imitate you safely? What would Jesus do? The Church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and it is to reflect him because it is built of gold and silver and precious stones and that gold and silver and precious stones is of Jesus Christ. It's the things of him that are built into our lives that will be gold and silver and they will be beautiful and they'll be pure, not fully pure in this life, but they will become that thing that is pure and that will last for eternity. Because the church of Jesus Christ will is stand, will stand and will be, is built to last. So that in Revelation 21, and Claire was, we were talking about my sermon in home groups, and I want to thank them for their insight. It's a great thing to do, actually. I thank them for some of the insights that came just from chatting about it before I'd prepared it. And Claire read, pointed us to this passage as well. In, I think it was Claire, it could have been somebody else. In 21, which we often read, don't we, at funerals. But in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first, earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away. No longer any sea. No longer anything that worries, frightens. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice that said, now the, thr- now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And we can go on, and it talks about how it's, the city is made of gold and precious stones. Because it's the church of Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ, of which Abbey Church is a part, is a church that's built to last and will last forever. And God will dwell in her. And it will be something that is beyond our imagination now. And those that have labored, like Auntie Doris, to build that, they will have their reward. The Bible has a lot to say about rewards. We don't often say much in church. But they will have their rewards. And their rewards will be like nothing compared to the rewards of this life. So, folks, let's build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Let's build with gold and silver and precious stones. And let Abbey Church be something that is to the praise of his glory. And let it last forever. Amen.